listening to the Weekly Sermon Podcast of Community Bible Church in Savannah, Georgia. If you'd like to learn more about CBC, check out our website at cbcofsavannah.org. And now this week's sermon from the series Identity, a study on the book of Ephesians. to stand on a stage before people and proclaim about you. For you and you alone are holy, and you and you alone are worthy. Yet you have given me this great task, um, again, that I am incapable of doing on my own, so I just ask for your grace. Speak through your word, Lord. Honor your Son. Um, Make me disappear. Make me to be more like your son, Lord. Help me to, in a way only that you can, bring glory and honor and majesty to Jesus. Lord, I pray your spirit would fall fresh on me. I pray that your people would have ears to hear. uh, And that in the end, Jesus would receive all glory and power. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Thanks, you guys can have a seat. If we need seats, I think we have a few down in the front. All right. New, new study, new book, Ephesians, New Testament, um, excited stuff. And so, got a lot to do. Let me start by asking this question. If you were asked to fill in the blank, who am I? What would you say? Now, if you're like me and my family's been listening to some Les Mis this week, I'm Jean Valjean, right? That's what we've been singing in our house. For those of you who are like, what is he talking about? Two, four, six, zero, one. You're like, uh, y'all need to go see the movie if you haven't seen it yet. But um, who are you? What what would you answer? What would you say? What would be the first thing? I'm a mom. I'm a teacher. I'm an accountant. I'm a Yankee. I'm a Baptist. I'm a Calvinist. I'm too thin. I'm too not thin. How would you respond? Right? I'm a fowler, which is, according to Psalm 91, something you guys should be running from, not listening to. Right? <laughs> So typically the way we answer that is with kind of descriptive terms. I'm tall. I'm from the north. I'm from the south. We use these descriptive terms. And those might describe what you are, but they are not who you are. Those are not your identity. If you're super spiritual, maybe you said, I'm a Christian, right? But is that your identity? Is that who you are? And, and it's an important question to ask because this, how you answer that question determines really how you will live your life. Who you understand yourself to be will determine who you are. And so we are going to spend the next couple of months looking at the book of Ephesians. And we've entitled the series Identity because it's going to answer the question, who am I? And it's going to give us several implications of of what that means then. What does that look like to be this identity? And so we're just going to kind of unpack that for the next couple, who knows how many months, uh, Today, we're going to jump into the first section, and right off the bat, we're going to see that Paul says, this is your identity, and he's going to give several implications right up front, already in just this first couple verses. And so, if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, which, look, we got 800 people or something like that on a Sunday morning, a lot of new Christians, a lot of non-Christians, and we're glad all of those are here, as long as, especially those who've been here from the beginning, we're glad everyone's here. But not everyone is at the same place spiritually, and we know that. And so here, let me kind of give some background for those who are newer to the faith or, or have questions about Christianity in general, the Bible is, is basically split into two major parts, the Old Testament and the New Testament. Okay? The Old Testament is 39 books. The New Testament is 27 books. And what the Old Testament does is, in essence, it tells the story of how, how God has rebelled against man. And it tells the story of how God is going to, in the future at that point, deliver man from his, from his sin. How God is going to rescue man from running away and rebelling against him. And so the entire Old Testament kind of points with pictures and prophecies of who this deliverer that God will send, who this rescuer, who this savior will be that will one day save people from the rebellion. That's the Old Testament in a nutshell. In the New Testament, what you have, starting with the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is you have the arrival of that savior. You have the deliverer. His name is Jesus. And so the Gospels are, are, are the story of many, many things in his life. 
And then after that, you have, for the most part, besides a couple, you have a history book called the Book of Acts, and you have the Book of Revelation, which is kind of an apocalyptic book. But in the middle of that, the rest of the New Testament are letters, are called epistles. And each letter is written to a specific group at a specific time. In the early first century, as Christianity was spreading, churches were popping up all over. And there would be issues in these churches, and there would be fights and squabbles and false teaching and all sorts of stuff going on. And so the apostles, Paul and John and Peter and these other guys, would write letters to these churches trying to settle disputes or, or kind of correct this false teaching that had snuck in. And so we have all these letters passed down in the New Testament, and each one has a context and it has an issue it's dealing with or a group of people that it was meant for. We're going to start the book of Ephesians. It was written to a church in where? Man, y'all are sharp. Wow. How did you figure that out? I mean, that's right. Good. A church in Ephesus. Here's the map of Ephesus. Here's kind of where Ephesus is in that day, right there in Asia Minor. Right. Woo. Look at that. No hands, y'all. I mean, look at that. All right. So there's Ephesus right there in Asia Minor. You got Italy and Greece. And here's kind of Jerusalem and, and Antioch on the right there where the churches started. Okay. This is a huge city in the New Testament. All right. Paul does a lot of cool things there. You can read all about it in Acts 19. He shows up for the first time, baptizes a bunch of folks, causes a riot, heals some people with handkerchiefs. It's a good story. You can go read it in Acts 19. All sorts of stuff. He spends a lot of time in Ephesus. Towards the end of his ministry, he spends three years there, right? Kind of leading a church and leading the church. It's a hugely significant city in the early church. All right. A couple years later, his protege, a guy named Timothy, is actually the pastor of this church. He writes two letters to Timothy to kind of instruct him how to lead this church. 30 years after that, there's a, writer, a book called Revelation written by John. And then part of it is written to the church that is in Ephesus. It's still there, still kicking. All right. And so really in the first century, Ephesus was like one of the buckles of the Bible Belt. It's a significant city, a lot going on. And he writes this letter to them, probably around 60, 61 AD. He's in prison at the time in Rome, waiting to be tried by Caesar. Right? And as he's there, he's kind of writing some letters. He writes this letter. He writes Colossians. He writes Philemon. Um, and kind of directing the church from prison. Many suggest that this is what we call a, sick, a circular letter and that it was not just meant for Ephesus. It was meant for all the surrounding cities. And so it was to be taken to Ephesus, copied, and kind of taken to another city and copied. And so it was written for all those people because there's no real specific names or anything in this book. You don't see, you know, tell Janie and Johnny to stop arguing and tell Joni to blah, blah, And you don't see that. Like you see that in all the other letters. This one's very generalized. So many think it's, it's actually in the end of Colossians, Paul says to the church of Colossae, I sent a church to Laodicea, get their letter, send them your letter, let them read yours. And many think that that letter to Laodicea, since Laodicea is right around the corner from Ephesus, is this letter. We don't know for sure, but the point is it was meant for all of them in Ephesus and ultimately for us. And so we're going to get a chance to look at it. It breaks really easily into two sections. Three, six chapters, chapter one through three, kind of deals with who am I? Who am I? What's my identity? Chapter four through six, okay, now in light of who I am, what am I supposed to do? What is my life supposed to look like in light of that identity? Real simplistic as it breaks down the middle. And we're going to spend a lot of time looking at it. And we're going to start today by just kind of cracking the door on the first major section of the book, which is really verses 1 through 14. That's a lot of text. So I'm going to do something I don't normally do. I'm going to have a two-part sermon. All right? So first service, I got through verse 6, and so that's kind of the stopping point. So Lord willing, we'll get the... Well, actually, you guys don't have anything after y'all, so we can get it the whole time if I wanted to. But we'll stop at verse 6 so that we're the same as everyone else. And I don't, I don't know how many points we end up getting. I think I put like seven on the bulletin, but I think we only get through four. So uh, I didn't know how long it was going to take and I um, until I felt like the time was right. And so we're going to go through verse 6. But let me read the entirety of this section. And the reason it's hard to break it up is this. Verses 3 through 14 in the original language is one glorious, big, long, Holy Spirit-inspired run-on sentence. Okay? There is, it's, it's as if Paul is just getting excited and he forgets to put period and question mark and, and everything. So he just goes and goes and goes and goes. And that's going to drive some of y'all mad. Some of y'all English people like speak the King's English. Y'all going to be mad at Paul. But he's inspired by the Spirit and you're not. So you can just, you can just put that... <laughs> so you can just put that beside. And let me read it. And we'll break it up again. We'll go through verse 6. But let me read the entirety of it, and then we'll, we'll jump into it. Starting verse 1. Paul, 
an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were first to hope in Christ might to the praise might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Period. Right? You can feel the tension. It's just in him and in him and it keeps going and keeps going and keeps going and on and on and on. Right? Okay. But he starts back in verse 1. And he says this. Paul, an apostle. So he identifies himself. I am an apostle. I am a messenger is what the idea is. I've been sent. I'm a messenger. I've been sent by Christ, by Messiah Jesus. Right? That's, that's the title Christ means, Messiah. I am a messenger. I am a representative. I am sent by Christ, and how did I get that role? How did I become an apostle? By the will of God. All right? This is not something Paul applied for. It wasn't a scholarship. It wasn't a position. He didn't go to Hebrew school and train to be an apostle. He was chosen by God to be an apostle. If you remember his story, you can read about it in Acts 9. Saul of Tarsus was killing Christians. He was putting Christians in jail. He's on his way to put more Christians in jail. God shows up, knocks him off his donkey, blinds him, asks him why he's persecuting him. And then he goes to another guy named Ananias and says, Ananias, there's this guy Saul. I just knocked him off his donkey. He's blind. I want you to go find him. And bring him to yourself and take care of him. And Ananias says, no, 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 I can't do that, God. This guy's mean. He kills Christians. And what does God tell Ananias? He is my chosen instrument to bring my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. Who chose him? God chose him. He knocked him off his donkey. And he chose Paul. He rescued him at that point, And he made him an apostle, a messenger of Jesus. So he starts there. I am an apostle. It's not my choosing. It was God choosing. And I'm writing to who? To the saints, i.e. the holy ones. Saints, for those who are kind of new to the church, are not funny guys that get their own necklaces. Okay? Saints are a synonym for Christians. In the New Testament, you see it constantly. You are considered a saint. So you are a saint regardless if you acted like one or not. If you are a Christian, you are a saint. So he says, I'm writing to the saints, to the Christians... In Ephesus, and then he makes this incredible statement, and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Underline that phrase, in Christ Jesus. It's a huge, huge statement, and we need to get our arms around it, and we're going to spend some time unpacking it, because it's foundational to the question we asked in the beginning, who am I? What's my identity? Right? Here's what the Bible teaches, and for some of you who have been in church all your life, okay, go play, you know, Angry Birds for a minute, and just let me talk to those who have not, right? The Bible teaches you are one of two positions, right? One of two. Everyone who's ever lived before us, now, and will ever live, you are in one of two places. You are either in Christ or you're not, right? And it's as if everyone in humanity is put on two teams, all right? Two teams, each team has a captain, right? Each captain is a representative for his team, Kind of like at the Super Bowl, the captain goes out. They say, what do you want, heads or tails? He says, heads. So he represented the whole team when saying heads. And so the whole team saying, we want heads. And he flips the coin, whether it is heads or tails. But either way, the captain represents the entire team. Captain of team one is Jesus. All right? Yeah, good captain. Yeah, that's right. Right. Captain of team two is who? Oh, yeah, good. Because everyone else says the devil. No, it's not the devil. Adam is captain of team two. So two teams, 
Team Jesus, Team Adam. Here's what Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians. For as by a man, that's Adam, came death. By a man has also come the resurrection. That's Jesus. And then he explains, he, he tells you which team. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. And so you have two teams, Team Adam, Team Jesus. Now the bad thing about Team Adam is they lose Every time. They are O in infinity. They're like the Braves in the playoffs. They never win. All right? Yes. Yes. <laughs> All right? So they're O in forever. Team Adam loses. Team Jesus, what does it say? Wins. People are alive. People are dead. People are alive. And, and this is why, by the way, the scripture often calls Jesus the second Adam. The first, they, both the first and the second Adam faced very similar situations. Both were tempted in a garden. First Adam tempted in the garden of Eden. He failed. Second Adam tempted in the garden of Gethsemane. He said, not my will, but your will. First Adam was tempted by a tree. And he ate. Second Adam was tempted by a tree, which he carried and was nailed to. See, the first Adam failed... The second Adam did not fail. He won. And so in the first Adam, there is death. In the second Adam, there is life. Now, here's the bad news for everybody. When you are born, you are automatically drafted onto a team. And guess which team you go to go to? Team Adam. Because his nature is passed on to his sons, and their sons pass it on to their sons, and your great great grandparents pass it to them, to them, and eventually down your line, because you have a dad, you got Adam's sin nature through your father. So if you're a kid, you can look at your dad and say, This is your fault. And you would be right. You got your sin nature from your daddy. I got mine from my daddy, and I gave it to my three boys and my daughter. All right? That's the nature of it. Sin is passed through the father to the children. Which is why, by the way, someone had to be born without an earthly father. Hmm, who would that be? Right? To escape that Adamic nature. Right? So everyone's on Team Adam. And in Team Adam, you may be physically alive, but you are spiritually dead. Dead as a doornail. We'll see it in chapter 2. You are dead in your trespasses and in your sins. And you need to be made alive. And this is the foundation for all your identity. This is the foundation for the rest of the book. And not only is it incredibly important theologically, it is your internal destiny hangs in the balance. So listen to me. The question this morning you have to ask and answer is, am I in Christ or am I in Adam? Because I'm somewhere. I'm not in the middle. I'm not in Moses. I'm not in David. I'm not in the Apostle Paul. You are either in Christ or you are in Adam. Adam. And the difference is this. If you are in Christ at the cross, Jesus takes your place. There is a trade. There is a switch. And so all the death and shame and condemnation that you deserve because of sin, Jesus takes that. And all the love and grace and honor and affection and peace that Jesus deserves as a son of God, you get that. And there's a trade. When I am in Christ, I am in his position, and he was in mine on the cross. And we use this illustration a lot, but it works. Man, I got a pink one this time. How did I get a pink? That's great. I had black earlier. Uh, this pick, this pink, hot pink pick, represents you. Separate from this Bible, which represents God. This is God. This is you. God sees you as independent of him. You are separate. You are sinful. When you are in Christ, when you are put in Christ, this is what happens. You go in Christ, and so you are no longer sinful and separate. You are in him. And when the Father sees you, who does he see? Does he see a pink, hot pink pick over here? No. He sees his son. How does the Father feel about the son? Does he love the son? Does he honor the son? Does he show grace to the son? Does he bless the son? Yes. When you are in Christ, you are in his position. And everything the Father does to him, he does to you. That's what it means to be in Christ. And so there is a change of identity. See, what they turned black. What, how, how did that happen? I got I to, there we go. And I, the black one should have been sin. Hot pink should have been pure or something. I don't know, right? But there's a change of identity. Right? There's a change. In Team Adam, you lose. In Team Jesus, you win. In Team Adam, you're condemned. In Team Jesus, you're rescued. In Team Adam, there's old nature. Team Jesus, there's new nature. Team Adam, you're cursed. 
Team Jesus, you're blessed. Team Adam, there's, love, there's death and wrath. Team Jesus, there's life and love. So the question is, which are you in? Right? It's foundational. Are you in Christ or not? And this is the language of the New Testament. The New Testament does not say, are you a Christian? It doesn't say that. In fact, you know how many times the Apostle Paul says to the Christians in this, and, and are you a Christian? And I'm a Christian. My kids, I want them to be Christians. You know how many times Paul uses that language? Zero. The word Christian is only found in the Bible three times, twice in the book of Acts, once in the verse, first Peter. How many times does he say in Christ, in the beloved, in him? Over 200 times. And when you say something 200 times, you're trying to get a point across. You're trying to get people to remember something. You are either in Christ or you are not. Right? And it's foundational to start seeing ourselves in Him. That He is our hope. That He is the essence of our life. That our power and joy are in Christ. And that means you do not find your identity in descriptive terms. I'm short. I'm tall. I'm a Yankee. Uh, I like the Braves. That's a horrible identity. Right? You don't do it in this descriptive terms. You don't find your identity in personality. I'm a, what are you on the test? I'm a M-I-S-T. I'm a eagle. I'm a snake. I don't know what, I'm a fish. You don't find your identity in those things. You don't find your identity in what you have done. I was an adulterer. I was a divorcee. I was a whatever. And you certainly don't find your identity in what you do now, which is where we all do all the time. So if I ask some of you ladies, what are you? I'm a mom, which is an awesome thing to be. That is not your identity. Because if you value that and that's your thing that you value most and that's where you find your significance, what happens when the kids go away? What do you have? Right? Which they will. Glory be. (laughs) If you find it in your job. I'm a pastor. What happens when I preach a lousy sermon? What happens when someone leaves the church? What happens if we shrink? What happens if there's conflict and everything that rests in what I do? If you're a businessman and, and you, you don't land the big deal, or maybe you get laid off because the economy's going this way, and everything was in that, and now you're nothing, and you're crushed, right? That, that's the way it is. If my identity, if I can just be married, then that'll be, I'll have value. No. What happens if that, that marriage, there's conflict? What happens if, God forbid, that, that spouse is taken away from you? If your identity is there, what happens? You're crushed. Nothing can bear the weight of the glory of God but God himself. And when you throw glory and value on the shoulders of other things, it will crush them. They cannot handle it. Your job cannot handle the glory that God deserves. Your spouse cannot hold to the glory that God deserves. Your kids cannot handle the glory that God deserves. Your values in being an athlete in this. What happens when you get old? I went running one time last week and I was lame for two weeks. I'm like, what in the world happened to me? (laughs) Can't even walk anymore. What happens when that happens? You can't run the eight minute mile, the seven minute mile. What, What happens? Your value, you must see your value either in Christ or not in Christ. Everything else, you will be frustrated, depressed, disappointed. I am in Christ, and he is the only one that can carry the weight of that glory because he is the only one that deserves it. That is foundational to this book. That is foundational to to the Christian faith. I am in Christ, or I'm not. And what you see for the rest of this, this portion of the scripture and this book is what are the implications? What does that mean? And what, what happens if I am in Christ? Let me, let me give you a couple. I think we'll get through four. Okay, it starts in, again back in verse one, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. First thing in Christ that we are is that we are faithful or we can be. It's a present tense who are right now when he's writing it. You are faithful in Christ Jesus. Have you ever not been faithful? Have you ever blown it? Have you ever been inconsistent? Got angry or bitter at God for something? Walked away for a period of time? Failed in the sin over and over? Been doing something that you knew you're hiding at the video store or at the Walmart buying something you're hoping I don't run in someone from church? Have you ever wished that you would be more faithful? How can you be more faithful? Only in Christ. 
when you remember. And, so, and this is not power of positive thinking. But some of you just need to wake up in the morning and understand that you are no longer a slave to sin. And that you do not have to sin anymore. Because if any man be what? In Christ, he is what? A new creation. Okay, this is not positive thinking. This is just the scripture. If you are in Christ, you are no longer a slave to sin. It is no longer your master. You only, only you, it only is your master if you let it be. And you can say and wake up and think, I, am, I can be faithful. Why? Because I'm in Christ. Only in Christ. Now, Jesus tells us in John 15, he tells his disciples, hey, if you want to bear fruit, what do you have to do? You have to remain, you have to abide in me. Because in me, you bear fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So many Christians wake up and they think they can go out and have a good life and try hard and bear fruit on their own. They're trying to be the vine when they are just a little twig off the vine. And you are not a good vine. No one is. There's only one vine. And the only way there is fruit is when you are linked to the vine. You are, not a, you are a stick apart from the vine. It has nothing on it. It's good for nothing but the fire. And so instead of waking up and trying hard, how about waking up and trying to abide and drawing near to him and trying to follow what he has to say and, and, and in relationship and in time and in meditation and thinking on what, what does it that mean? That is where fruit will come. It's not for going out and trying hard, doing my best. That is dead religion, and it brings no fruit. In Christ, some of you need to be encouraged this morning. You can be faithful. Now, present tense, in Christ. He continues, verse 3. And he starts this glorious run-on sentence with worship, because it really is that. It's all it is. It's worship. It's a big praise psalm. He says, blessed be the God. It's this, this Greek word, eulogetos. You get our English word, eulogy. You hear it come on over. A eulogy is when you say something nice. It's say something nice. Let's say something nice about God the Father. That's what he's saying. Let's praise him. Let's say nice things about him. Why? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus. Why? Because he's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. And I know this is cheesy Southern Christianity talk, but it's also scriptural. In Christ, you are blessed. That's what he says. In Christ, we are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That's your second we are. We are blessed. Now, we hear blessed. What we do most of the time is we go right to physical, right? We go, blessed means Good job. Blessed means good marriage. Blessed means 2.5 kids in a Labrador. Blessed means my team's undefeated and we won. If we lose, we're not blessed. If we win, we're blessed. That's what we hear, right? But that's not what he says. What did he say? You are blessed with every, that means nothing is held back, every spiritual blessing, where? In the heavenly places. Now, I, when we hear that, we're like, ah. Oh. Yeah, I know. It's like the, the grandkid, the grandparents say, we're going to give you $500 this year for Christmas. And every Christmas from here on out. And the grandkids say, yes. He said, and we're going to put it in a trust fund so you get it when you're 50. <laughs> and they're like, what is it? I don't care about that. I want it now. That When we hear blessed in the spiritual realm, in the heavenly places, isn't that what we think? That's great. Blessings in heaven. I want the Corvette. I want the good job. I want good health. I want the spouse. That's what I want. That's what we hear, right? So if, if Bill Gates comes up and says, I want to give you Microsoft, we're like, yay. Even if it is lousy, yay. We're excited because we're billionaires now. But when God says, I have blessed you, not just with some stuff, I have given you every, every, all spiritual blessing there is to get in the heavenly places. Yeah, but I want the vet. I want the job. Why do you think that is? I, th I think I came to the conclusion that I think it's because we quite often don't think about heaven very much. I, I think that we don't think about heaven. That, that heaven's great, and that's the place where I'll get a, like, a nice white outfit and a harp. And then I'll play it, and we'll sing the hallelujah chorus, and that'll be great. And it's not as bad as hell, but it's just, you know, it's kind of there. It's just kind of this thing. It's out there. That's heaven. That'd be good. And that's kind of our mindset. And we, but I really like the Corvette. 
That would be heaven. <laughs> Seven speed. Right? But let me challenge you this week to just read those portions of Scripture, the end of Revelation, that, that describe heaven just a little bit. And what you see in the Scripture is we don't know a lot about heaven. It doesn't tell us a lot about it. But what we know, it's amazing. And think about, what, think about your best imagination of what heaven might be like. And understand that the best thing you could possibly fathom is not even in the ballpark. Not even in the ballpark. You have no clue the joy and contentment and satisfaction and glory that is awaiting us. No clue. Only a couple guys got to see us, just a smidgen of heaven. Paul, Paul got to see it in, in First Corinthians, Second Corinthians 12. John got to see it. Isaiah sees a, a vision of it. And Paul probably had the best picture of it. And he talks about it. You can read it in 2 Corinthians 12. He says, it was so glorious. It was so amazing. I was so elated with this vision that I had to be struck by God with a thorn in the flesh because I was so proud about it. I was so proud of what heaven was and and what was awaiting us and how glorious it was. God himself had to send a thorn in the flesh to keep me humble. And he says, I asked God, please take this away. Please take this away. Three times I asked him. He says, no, my grace is sufficient for you. You can have this. And so he says, okay. He lives the rest of his life with a thorn in the flesh, which we don't know what it was, because he got to see a smidgen of heaven. This is the humblest man who ever lived, probably besides Christ, and he's proud about this. How glorious is what God has for us. We cannot fathom it. And what Paul wants us to get and see is that you have, you have what Christ has. And God is not living in the burbs. He is living in absolute glory. And he says, come on in. This is yours too. I'm creating a place for you so that you may be with me. In Christ, you are blessed. We are blessed. He continues, verse 4. And he kind of describes these blessings to us in the rest of this passage. So he says, he's given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Now, some of y'all have already gotten your own. There's the C word, chose, chosen. You know, the next verse has predestined too. So y'all going to flip out when we get there, I'm sure. Right. Some of you are like, oh, it's one of those verses. Right. Right. And let me just say this before we move any further, because others are like, yeah, chosen, predestined. Let's talk. Right. If you are, if you came expecting, because this is your hobby horse, 22 to 26 year old Piper loving male who plays too much Xbox. This is you. Right. And you want me to unpack the intricacies of tulip. And oh, and some of you are like, tulip, what's that? It's a flower. That's all you need to know. It's a flower. <laughs> right? And you're hoping that I'm going to slam that church and I'm going to slam that person and I'm going to enter, I'm going to talk about superlapsarianism and Arminianism and I'm going to do it all. And you're excited. You are going to be greatly disappointed this morning. Right? And if you came thinking I'm going to flame the fire of your anger and hatred towards your old church, which was exactly opposite, not going to do it. It's not going to do it. Right? And if you think the, uh, that Bill Fowler former PE teacher can explain to you the intricacies about the sovereignty of God and how he in sovereignty elects some. If you think I'm going to solve that problem for you, man, you really are going to be disappointed this morning. We're going to look at what he says because here's the reality. The Bible teaches the doctrine of election and no one denies that. The argument is what is that election based on? That's, that's where everyone fights and splits churches. And I'm telling you, I'm not going to fan the flame and let you do it here. I can tell you right now. It is silly when churches split over these issues. I can tell you it is dumb and it's from the devil. It is, it is absolutely absurd to split, leave it, be mad because they have a different view on the sovereignty of God. Look what it says. What does it say? That he chose us. All right. That's pretty clear. In Christ, in him, there it is again. When did he choose us? Before the foundation of the world. Before eternity began, he chose us in Christ that we should be holy and blameless. It's pretty, it's what it says. Now, some of you were taught, you know, back in 1976, and in verse number seven of Just As I Am, 
you know, God wrote my name in the Lamb's Book of Life. Glory be. Amen. Right? And that sounds so great, but you know what? It's not true. When was your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life? Revelation says this. Before the foundation of the world. Before God spoke creation, those who would believe their name was already there. Those are his chosen. Back then. Why? Because he is the initiator. Because no one seeks God. There is not one. No one. Because we're dead in our trespasses and sins. God has to initiate. God has to move because no one wants God. We reject God. So God is the initiator. God is the one who is sovereign in election. Now, at the same time, for those of you who are like, oh, understand this. That does not negate the responsibility of man to repent and believe the gospel. It does not negate the responsibility of people to hear and believe. It does not. Jesus says, those who come to me, I will not turn them away. Whoever believes in me will have eternal life. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets, he says. How many times did I want to gather you in like a mother hen gathers her chicks, but you didn't listen. You weren't willing. So you have on one hand God's sovereignty and election. He moves in his, in his sovereign will. At the same time, we have a human responsibility. How do the two mesh? Don't have a clue. And I have no clue. But I see that Scripture teaches both sides. You know what? I, quite honestly, I'm okay with that. Because I don't want a God that I can get my arms around. I want a God who's got his arms around me. I don't want a God that I can figure out everything. And there's many things that we believe and hold to absolutely, with absolute certainty, but that we don't grasp. You tell me. How can Jesus be 100% man and at the same time 100% God? That's called the hypostatic union. How could that be? I know I went to public school and I was a PE major, but that's 200%, y'all. How can that be? How can we have one God who eternally exists, co-equal persons, Father, Son, and Spirit? Each is fully God, yet there is one God. Again, I was a PE major, but one plus one plus one in my school was one. It was three. <laughs> That's right. That's why I was a PE major. How can that be? Yet the scripture teaches it. How many of you can grasp the, and figure out eternity past? That a bazillion years ago... When God was there, just Father, Son, and Spirit, no angels, no demons, no creation, no nothing, just God. But yet a billion years before that, there was just God. And a quadrillion years before that, there was just God. And a bazillion quadrillion years before that, there was just God. And you can keep going back and you never will find a beginning of just God. You tell me you can understand that? Then you better come up here and tell us. I, don't, I cannot grasp some of the mysteries of God. But I believe them because he has shown them in the scripture. And that it is a great comfort to me that it is not my responsibility to convert anyone. It is my, my job to figure out who the elect are and who the elect are not. My job is to proclaim Christ and him crucified and him risen. And I'll leave the electing up to him and I'll do the preaching. Right? And it is great comfort to me because I know I can't change a man anyway. So I'm to be faithful with what God has given us. Right? It's a great comfort to me. But don't miss the purpose. I can tell you. Too many people get mad and angry about this issue and they will leave and be mad at churches and split churches. Do you think that that was what the Apostle Paul was trying to do? I'm going to get them Southern Baptists. I'm going to split the convention with this verse. Woo, look at this. And the Presbyterians are all going to hate me because of this. And the Episcopals and the Anglicans. Oh, and the Lutherans are going to hate the Methodists because I'm going to write this. This is going to be great. Do you think that's his heart? It's absolutely not. What does he say? Blessed be the God and Father. He's worshiping. Why? Because he wants these people to understand the third thing that we are in Christ is that we are chosen. He, he wants them to celebrate that. You have been chosen. Look, some of y'all have never been chosen for anything. Fifth grade, kickball field. The last person is between you and the tree. The tree gets picked. You get sent to right field every time. You're the last person in the kicking line. You never win the lottery thing at the, the high school raffle. You never get picked. The point is this. Yes, you were. You were not desirable, but God drew you and he chose you. Nobody wanted you, but he did. And he's the only one that matters. 
That is the passage. That's the heart of the passage. It's not, can't wait to split these churches. Y'all, and that's why there's no punctuation, I think. That's why it's this glorious Holy Spirit-inspired run-on sentence. Because he can't stop. Blessed be the God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the spiritual pla- heavenly places with every spiritual blessing. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, you can just hear him rolling on. In love, he predestined us. And he's going, he's going, because he's excited. He's not mad. And if you get mad about the sovereignty of God, then there's a heart issue. And if I know there's some churches that will preach a whole entire sermon series on why the evils of Calvinism and the evils of this. You know what? That is not the fruit of the Spirit, I can tell you. This, that's not the heart of this passage. The heart is, look what God has done. He has chosen me to be, what? Holy and blameless. It's a present tense. To be right now, holy and blameless. Have you ever felt unholy? Have you ever felt shame and dirty? Have you ever let that sin, that thing that you did 20 years ago, some of you, define your life? I had an abortion. I got divorced. I was a lousy parent. Now my kids are knuckleheads. And you let that dominate you? What this shows us is that, you know, it doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how unholy you lived. It doesn't matter what sin you may have done, you did today, or you will do. If you are in Christ, you are right now, present tense, holy and blameless. Period. Now, some of you, that freaks you out and you're like, don't tell people that. Because they're going to go out and sin, sin. They're going to sit it up. Now that they know they're forgiven, they're blameless, they're going to sin, sin, sin until the cows come home. And my response is, no, they will not. Are they going to slip and fall? Yes, they will. But no one who is truly in Christ is going to take advantage of their daddy and his grace. When they see that they have broken the heart of their father, they will return. It may take some time, but they will come like the prodigal and say, I'm not worthy to be called your son. And he will throw the ring on him and the robe and say, come on, son, let's go. See, that, that is what it means to be in Christ. And those who are in Christ have a heart to live out that grace. So they're not going to take advantage of it. In Christ, who are you? You can be faithful. You're blessed. You're chosen to be holy and blameless. Why? Because it's Christ's holiness. And one more thing. I think we're good. I'll tell you we're good. Verses 5 and 6. Start with verse 5. In love, he predestined us. There's the P word. He predestined us for what? For adoption. How? Through Jesus. He predestined us. He predetermined what? That you would be adopted. Okay, some of you adopted kids, and you know this is a great picture for you to get it better than anyone else. But most of us understand the concept. Someone who is not part of your deal now becomes part of your deal. Someone who was separated and alienated from your family and didn't have the blessings of being in your family now gets brought into your family, right? So you were on team Adam, Owen, infinity. And Jesus says, I want you to be on my team and we've never lost. And you switch, right? That's adoption. It's hard for me as a man to admit this, but I will. We have a cat as a family. We have a cat. I have a minivan. I have a cat. I don't know what's going on in my life. And this cat was not my choice. The sovereignty of the daddy did not have anything to do with this. But my wife and kids went down to the place to give out free cats downtown. And they went down, and out of this bunch of cats, they said, we want that cat. So they took that cat. They named it. I don't know what its name is. We call it Kitty, but it has some formal name, I'm sure. (laughs) We bring this free cat home to my house. All right, adopt it. It becomes part of the family. It gets treated better than anyone, probably. It breaks something. It, oh, it's okay, kitty. I break it. I'm in, you know, I'm in trouble. The cat breaks it, right? So it's part of the family. First night we had this cat does something weird to its eye. So at nine thirty at night, I'm at the emergency cat room <laughs> with my wife. Two hundred and fifty dollars later, I got medicines. 
cat has more medicines I've ever taken in my life. This, the free $250 cat comes to my house. Three days later, have to go back for the follow-up visit. $200 later, the $450 free cat is now healthy and fine. Right? Why do we lavish? Why did I spend $450 on this cat, on the free cat? Because it had been brought into the family. Because it was ours. It was destined for the needle. Right? <laughs> and what happened? They rescued it. They adopted it. They gave it a name. They spent I spent $450 <laughs> on it. And now it's blessed, right? It has a place. That's the idea with adoption. You were destined for death. There was nothing attractive about you. There was nothing that drew God to you. Why did you he adopt you? What does the verse say? The first two words, in love. In love he did this. Because he loved you first. <coughs> And beyond a $450 cat, he says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to send my only son, and I'm going to kill him so that you could be my son and my daughter. And Jesus looks at you and says, I'm going to die for you so that you can be my brother and my sister. See, that's adoption. That's a lot more than $450. That's why Paul is enamored with grace. That's why he's not motivating us by guilt and shame and you oughta and you should and you did and duty and all these things. Where does he appeal? Blessed be God. He's chosen you. He has adopted you. And, and in the end, look at the verse again, verse 5. He says, according, what does he do? It's, it's according to the purpose of his will. That word purpose there, you could translate it to the pleasure of his will. And, and different translations handle it differently. But the idea is he takes pleasure. His will is to, to take pleasure in doing so. He takes pleasure in showing grace. He takes pleasure in taking the cat out of the cage and lavishing it with love. That's what he does. Right? And in verse 6, why? It's to the praise of his glorious grace. All he wants in response is not for you to, to earn it, to try harder. It's just worship so that you would praise his glorious grace with which he has blessed us. Where? In the beloved. He's not looking for payment back. You cannot pay him back for his son. He just wants the worship he so rightly deserves because of his grace. That grace is to drive us. That grace is to motivate. It's, this is freeing, y'all. You who are continually beating yourself up of how bad you are and trying hard, you don't get. Grace is freeing. It frees you from trying hard. It frees you from trying to impress God, to earn His favor. You cannot earn what already has been lavished on you in Christ. You can't get any more favor. You get the favor of Christ Himself. You can't get any more than that. You are blessed like Christ himself. You are loved like Christ himself. That is what it means to be in Christ. And you don't have to try harder now. It's Christ in me, living through me, the fruit of the Spirit. That, that's what it is. It's drawing near to Christ so Christ who's living in me now bears fruit through my life. It's not try hard, do better, duty, all these things. It's Jesus in you reflecting himself. That is what we're called to do. That comes from being in Christ. And so the question this morning, and we'll close there and we'll come back dot, dot, dot next week. The question you have to ask, and don't leave this, this place today without answering it and answering it honestly. Are you in Adam or are you in Christ? Because you're in one or the other. And I know some of you, maybe you're new to church and you're like, this whole, I don't, I don't know if I really need this Jesus. I don't really know if I need this kind of deal. I'm a good person. I pay my taxes. I don't cheat on my wife. I don't get drunk. I'm good. Now, for that guy over there, this is good because he needs it. He's, he's a sinner. 
but I'm kind of a good person. Look, if your comparison was between the wretched sinner and you, then maybe you would be better. But the comparison is not between you two. It's between Jesus and you. And you fall way short of Jesus. And unless you are perfect like him, you cannot get into heaven. You have to have a substitute. You have to be in Christ. So how do I get in Christ? You have to be born again. Not physically, but spiritually. You were born physically in Adam. You were born spiritually in Christ. Those who in Adam are born alive and they will die. Those who are born in Christ will live forever in Christ. They're alive spiritually. And the only way to be in Christ, it's very simple. It's not walking an aisle. It's not praying a prayer. It's not getting baptized. It's not showing me your certificate of whatever from this church and a membership from this. It's not from doing anything. It's very simple. You want to know what it is? It's belief. It is you believe that Jesus left heaven, became a man, died on a cross in your place. He rose again and you simply take him at his word and you believe that that was for you. You trust in Christ for your salvation, not in yourself. And you say, that's it? Just that little belief? Just that little belief. Well, that's too easy. That's the point. You have to come and say, I can't do anything. I have nothing. I can't even like, get, write a check one time. I have to simply do nothing and believe. And some people are so proud that they will stumble all over the gospel and miss it because they want to do something. They want to add to that. Look, if you could add to the gospel, then Jesus didn't need to die. Okay, He came to die and pay for all sin. What are you going to add to that? And you saying, I need to do something else, it's you saying that Jesus wasn't enough. If righteousness came through the law, then Christ died needlessly. He could come down from heaven and say, just be a good guy. Don't be like them. Float back up and skip the cross. He had to die in your place. And so your response today, if you are not in Christ, is belief. Don't do anything Just trust, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. And for those who have, is to continue to recognize and praise God because you are in him, that you are chosen, that you are adopted, that you are blessed, that you have the opportunity now to be faithful as we leave this place. Let's stand and let's worship. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the truth of being in Christ. I thank you there's nothing that we can do to earn it. Thank you for your favor and for your love. (coughs) Father, for the person in this room that needs to be in Christ today, to believe, I pray for your eyes, their eyes to be open. And for us who are, that we would not forget the privilege and remember that we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We give you glory in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.